If we haven't been introduced before, my name is David Guzik. Uh, I'm a pastor at Calvary Chapel in Santa Barbara. But what's probably most relevant to you all is I am a longtime friend of your pastor, Pastor Miles. Uh, we worked together in Germany many years ago, and we've had a friendship over the years. And Pastor Miles has helped me a lot with a ministry that I have online. I have an online Bible commentary that's on a few different websites, but the website that I kind of most directly work with is called EnduringWord.com, and Pastor Miles helps me a lot with that. So if you ever need Bible resources or you're preparing for a teaching you're going to do or you're part of a Bible study and want some background, go use the resources on EnduringWord.com. But what makes me excited about what you guys are doing is we translate my Bible commentary in a lot of different languages. It's almost all translated into Spanish. It's going into Russian, German, Chinese. But right now we're working on Arabic. And my Gospel of Luke commentary is being translated to Arabic right now. And uh, it's an exciting project. Uh, just trying to get good Bible resources out to people all over the world. So I'm very happy to be here. And uh, I just want to bring you something from God's Word. So Father, I pray that you bless our time together in your Word. And we're grateful for the opportunity. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. If you would, with that, please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 8. Although I'm actually going to begin with the last verse of chapter 7. But the Gospel of John chapter 8, and we'll take a look at chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Let me read the first couple verses of that to you here. Uh, John chapter 7, starting at verse 53. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scene is Jesus there teaching on the Temple Mount. And I have to bring up just a, a small note. Just it, It's maybe of interest only to a few of you. But many of you will notice that in your Bible, this section starting at John chapter 7 verse 53 has an asterisk or a footnote to it. It might talk about it being in different manuscripts for my own study of the section, let me just kind of tell you what it amounts to, is that there is something that rings so true about this, and it's enough uh, manuscript evidence behind it to make us believe that this truly does belong in our Bibles, but there is some manuscript question as to where it belongs. In a few ancient manuscripts, it's in different places in the Gospel of John. And believe it or not, in one ancient manuscript, it's in the Gospel of Luke, this little section. The, the takeaway from it is, yes, we believe this belongs in our New Testament. There's a little bit of controversy as to where it belongs in the New Testament. But there were some early Christians, notably Augustine, the great theologian of the early church, who were not comfortable with the story that we're going to study this morning. Because they thought it made Jesus seem too forgiving and maybe even soft on sin. And that intrigues me. And I hope it intrigues you about this section. So the, the scene is simply this. Jesus has been in a lot of controversy with the religious leaders. You know that in those controversies with the religious leaders, Jesus usually ended up making them embarrassed and sometimes looking foolish. They, they never got the better of him. So in that context, this controversy back and forth with the religious leaders, Jesus is on the temple mount. He's not in the building of the temple, but on the temple mount in that area, teaching. I, I don't know how big the crowd is that he's teaching. What do you think? 100, 
200 people, something like that. So do you have that picture in your mind? Jesus is sitting down. That was the posture in that day. The teacher would sit and his audience would stand. I say, we get back to biblical Christianity and I just didn't know that. What a pretty pass we've come to in 2,000 years, isn't it? Now I'm standing and you all are sitting. But in Jesus' day, it was reversed. The teacher would sit. The audience would stand. What he, he's speaking, let's say, to 100 people. Fair enough? We, we don't know the number, but let's just say it was 100 people. Do you have that scene in your mind? Okay, now we come to verse uh, 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher... This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? I often tell people that when they read the Bible, it should be like a movie playing in their mind. D did you see the movie there? You know, if I ask you to direct a scene of this thing, you could probably reconstruct it, couldn't you? There's Jesus seated teaching a uh, hundred or so people there in the Temple Mount. And wouldn't you love to have known what he was teaching them at that moment? We're not told in the text, are we? But we know it was amazing. We know it was profound. We know it was authoritative. We know that when people heard Jesus teach, they said, no one ever taught like this man. So there he is in that scene. And in the midst of it, his teacher is interrupted. The, the teaching is interrupted not by someone with a question. Rabbi, I don't understand. Can you clarify that? It's not interrupted by an objection. Rabbi, that's not what the other rabbi teaches. It's not interrupted any other way other than this. There's a commotion that begins at the back of the crowd where some of the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and by the way, you knew who the scribes and the Pharisees were because they dressed in a distinctive way. They, you know, kind of the ancient equivalent of the clerical collar, you know, the special religious robe, whatever, man, they had it. There's a group of scribes and Pharisees coming up from the back and they're dragging a woman. Now I say dragging because it seems pretty clear from the text that she's there against her will. She didn't volunteer for this. She's coerced. There was some kind of bizarre religious police citizens arrest going on and they're dragging her in her own disheveled condition because, and I have to treat this a little bit delicately, the text says that she was caught in the very act of adultery. I don't know if a robe was hastily thrown over her. Her hair's a mess. Her, her face is a combination of wet and dried tears. She's horrified because not only was she caught in the very act of adultery, embarrassing enough, but she could walk out of this dead, which wouldn't be walking out of it, but you know what I mean. <laughs> this could end up with her with her death. They drag her before Jesus Throw her down in a heap. I've never had a teaching interrupted that way. Throw her down in a heap before Jesus. And with this mixture of hatred and, 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 uh, and hypocrisy and, and maybe a little bit of pride, we got you on this one, Jesus of Nazareth. They say, what do we do with her? We caught her in the very act of adultery. What should we do with her? Now, brothers and sisters, you got to agree, that's quite a scene. We know something about ancient Jewish law because they wrote a lot about it. They had a very sophisticated legal system. And we know what was required for a capital offense, a death penalty worthy offense. 
and especially as it related to this crime. It required several standards of evidence to be met. Number one, it meant that there had to be two witnesses to the act of adultery and they both had to completely agree together in what they saw. One witness, no, not enough. I, and again, I, I, I apologize for my kind of forwardness in describing this, but it's just the situation. It wouldn't have mattered if there was a person present in the room where the adultery was committed who saw everything. Wouldn't, there had to be two people present. Secondly, they had to see the actual act of adultery take place. It wasn't enough to say, oh, they went into a bedroom together and came out sometime later. We all know what happened. No, that's not enough. You can't say that. They had to see the, it wasn't enough, according to the Jewish law at the time, it wasn't enough to see them lying on a bed together and say, well, we know what happened. No, they had to see the actual act of adultery take place. And it had to be in a context where there was no other reasonable explanation for what took place. That's what they saw. And they grabbed this woman, dragged her to Jesus, in a transparent attempt where they didn't care about justice. They didn't care about righting a wrong. They didn't care about holiness in the community of Israel. There was one reason for doing this, and that was to put Jesus on the spot. The woman was just a hammer that they could use to beat upon Jesus. And the fact that they humiliated her almost beyond description. Well, look, you know the old saying, if you want to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs, whatever. All of that is wrapped up in this situation where they take this woman, drag her before Jesus, leave her down in a heap and say, teacher, the law of Moses says that this woman should be stoned to death. What do you say? And I can just picture the smug, sick smiles on the faces of those religious leaders. Well, what is Jesus supposed to do? Now, you have already figured something out. There's already an alarm bell that's gone off in your mind. You've said this. All right. You ever see the old uh, TV show Columbo? Some of you are too young. You don't remember that. The, the TV show Columbo. He would say, there's just one thing I'd want to know, you know. He'd ask questions as a detective. And if you were there, you'd go into Columbo mode and you'd go up to these religious leaders. And what would you ask? You'd say, there's just one thing I want to know. You caught this woman in the very act of adultery. And you brought her here before Jesus to get justice. What would be your question? You'd want to know, where is the man well, somehow he's not present, is he? It may very well be, what well, almost certainly it was, a staged crime. The man was part of the staging and they preyed upon this woman, perhaps with some uh, adulterous affair that had been going on in some time and they set it all up just so that they could bring this woman before Jesus in this humiliating situation. There was tension in the air. 
There was clearly a battle between right and wrong going on. Can you imagine if you were part of the crowd listening to Jesus teach? I mean, you'd be like, get me popcorn. This is the most amazing thing. You would be both horrified and fascinated at the same time. You'd want to know, Jesus, what are you going to do with this one? What are you going to do? You'd be on the edge of your seat if you weren't already standing because it was only the teacher that sat. And if there would be anything in the whole atmosphere there, it would be shame. Can you just feel the depths of shame that radiates from this woman? Look, there is a particular shame that is attached to sin. And especially, let's face it, we can be real about this. Isn't there a particular shame that's attached to sexual sin? Or maybe I should say there used to be. Because we seem to live in a society today that seems to be absolutely shameless, especially when it comes to sexual sin. Things that used to humiliate people and be so shameful, things that used to ruin careers of celebrities 30 years ago, now advances their career. You go, how did this turn happen? If this would have happened 30, 40 years ago, their career would be over. Now it catapults them into a whole nother level of fame. I'm going to suppose, and I'm no expert, so I'm just talking out loud. But I'm just thinking out loud about this and just think that maybe, maybe when our whole culture went in this whole psychologically focused thing with Freud and one of Freud's big things was that the reason why people are messed up in their mind is because they're repressing their sexuality and the whole use of psychology is to release people from that and to release people from all the shame that they feel and the way to release people from their shame is to just persuade them. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. Just, you're fine. You're good. Can I just ask you a question? How's that working out for us? You're, you're fine. You're good. You got nothing to be ashamed of. Then, then why is everybody medicated to the hilt? You're fine, you're good, you got nothing to be ashamed of. Then why are people cutting themselves more than ever? You're fine, you're good, you got nothing to be ashamed of. Then why are people numbing themselves with non-stop entertainment so that they, they, they seem to be guarding themselves against a moment where they could just think about who they are and what they do in this world? Now, I, I'm not saying that shame is the only explanation for those things. But I got to believe it's part of it. We have been trying for hundreds of years to solve our problem of shame by pretending it didn't exist. Or by trying to cover it over with anything we could cover it over with. And I'll tell you something, none of those things I think address our problem of shame. I think it sticks with it. But I'm here to give you good news that I think that this encounter with Jesus illustrates so powerfully. The good news is this. Jesus Christ has an answer for the problem of shame. He does. And I think that this story illustrates Jesus' answer to the problem of shame. If you have never felt shame over your sin, I pray that God would help you to feel an appropriate shame over your sin. 
But once you feel that appropriate shame over your sin, I pray that God would help you to do the right thing with it. And that's what Jesus is going to show us right here. So how's Jesus going to respond? Jesus, you are on the spot. Here you are just teaching on a lovely afternoon here on the Temple Mount. And it's a beautiful teaching. Everybody's amazed. They drag this woman. They plop her down before you. What are you going to do about her, Jesus? The law says that she should be stoned to death. What do you say? And look at Jesus' response as it comes in the very next verse, verse 6. What does Jesus do? Verse 6. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Man, the religious leaders thought, we've got him. There is no way out of this one for you, Jesus. No way out. You, and again, I just see the sick, smug smiles on the face of the religious leaders. And no doubt Jesus saw those smiles as well. And, and in my mind, Jesus reacted here in a totally bizarre way. Should not have Jesus done something like this. Should not have Jesus said, you religious hypocrites, bring me the man. How dare you do this? Because Jesus was offended at their miscarriage of judges, justice, no doubt. Sh shouldn't have Jesus maybe looked at the woman and said, lady, I don't know what kind of shame and filth you're bringing in on the nation of Israel, but our people are, are, are suffering because of the breakdown of the family and you seem to be one of the worst offenders. Lady, don't you got a husband? Lady, don't you got children? Jesus didn't do that. He didn't speak to the religious leaders. What did Jesus do? So sometimes we read the Bible, and I don't know what kind of fog comes over us when we read the Bible, but we don't read the Bible and go, this is bizarre. Because what Jesus did right here is bizarre. He didn't say anything. He pretended like he didn't even hear it. Now, he didn't go on and continue his teaching. He didn't go, well, that's weird, and let me continue telling you about Noah and the ark. He didn't do that. Jesus pretended like he didn't even hear them, and then he did something strange. He stooped down like he knelt down to the ground. I imagine that the woman's on a heap before him. He bows down probably somewhere near the woman, and he starts making marks on the ground. Does Jesus do this anywhere else in the Bible that we can tell? Never. This is weird. Jesus, what are you doing? I'll tell you what I think Jesus was doing. I think Jesus, in his nature as a servant, was doing everything he could to take the attention off her and put it on him. Now, he could have done, hey, everybody, look at me. He could have uh, done like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration and become all glorious. But he didn't do it. He did what he needed to do to tell everybody, you know what? I'm going to do something so offbeat that people start looking at me instead of looking at her. And people are going to look at me and go, what is he doing? What is he writing on the ground? What, why doesn't he talk to us? Jesus humbled himself, literally bowed down. 
identified himself with the woman in her shame, and yet at the same time did it all in a way that would communicate to everybody, to the religious leaders, to the hundred or so people who were watching him. He communicated to everybody, don't look at her, look at me. I'm writing something on the ground. Don't you wonder what I'm writing? This is the nature of Jesus. He looks at us in the shame of our sin and he doesn't say, he does not say, lady, you got nothing to be ashamed of. He doesn't say, lady, if it feels good, do it. Doesn't say that at all. What he says is, put the shame on me. I will cover you. Let me stand in between your guilt and shame and the religious leaders who want to destroy you. I will stand between you and shield you from that shame. What an amazing thing Jesus did. Now, um, it says there in verse 6 that he wrote on the ground. Everybody wants to know, what did Jesus write on the ground? And uh, look, I, I spend a lot of time studying the Bible. I write Bible commentaries. Let me tell you what I can tell you from my in-depth research as to what Jesus wrote on the ground. Are you ready for this? I don't know. <laughs> the text doesn't tell us. I can give you about seven guesses and suppositions. And if you're curious about it, ask me after service. I'm not going to go into it because we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. And apparently, it was not so important that the text would tell us. But Jesus was riding on the ground, drawing the attention. Everybody there was thinking, what's he doing? And they're not thinking, at least for a moment, about this poor, disheveled, utterly humiliated woman who's in fear for her life, there could be an honor killing right there on the Temple Mount. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I will put the attention on me. So what do you think the religious leaders do? Well, the next verse tells you, look at verse seven. So when they continued asking him, stop right there. They continued asking him. What was the question they asked him? What do you say? The law says she should die. What do you say? And it says they continued asking him. Now, do you know something about Middle Eastern culture, both ancient and modern? Do you know something about Jewish culture? Is it like reserved? Is it like British culture? Was it like this? I say there, old man, what shall you do with her? Was it something like that? No way. They're shouting. They're gesturing. They're angry. They're animated. That's how these cultures roll. This, this is a highly charged scene. They continued asking him. Look at there at verse 7. They continued asking him. He raised himself up and said to them. What do you think he's going to say? He raised himself up and said to them. You hypocrites, show me the man. Is that what he said? No, look at what he said. He said, he who is without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. 
I think that this comment by Jesus has been widely misunderstood. The way people usually quote that phrase goes something like this. You have no right to address sin in the life of anybody else if you've ever committed a sin. Does anybody therefore have the right to address sin in the life? No. And I'll tell you, the Bible tells us that there is a time and a place for us to address sin in the life of other people. Now, I agree, this story does show us that whenever we must address sin in the life of somebody else, we should do it with full awareness that we are sinners ourselves. And we should do it humbly, we should do it with tears, we should do it with a broken heart. Oh yes, this teaches us how we must conduct ourselves if we ever do have to address sin in the life of somebody else. But it isn't saying you can never address sin in the life of somebody else. No, that's not what it's saying. I'll tell you what Jesus is referring to, I believe. Do you know what the practice for capital punishment was for that sin in that culture? Which, by the way, was rarely, if ever, carried out. Why? How often do you think that there were two eyewitnesses to the actual act of adultery? Pretty rare, don't you think? But apparently they had him in this situation. And in such a situation where you had two eyewitnesses to the actual crime being committed, who was it who cast the first stone? It was one of the witnesses. That's how sure you had to be of what you saw. By the way, the Jewish law fully had in it the provision for capital punishment, but it also had many protections for the accused. And one of the protections of the accused was the eyewitnesses to the crime had to be so sure of what they saw that they themselves initiated the punishment. What Jesus was doing, in a sense, was saying, show me the witnesses. Because if you show me the witnesses, I'll show you a miscarriage of justice. If you show me the witnesses, the first question I'll ask is, where's the man? You show me the witnesses and I'll say, tell me about the plot that you set up to bring this woman here. You show me the witnesses and I'll expose a miscarriage of justice. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, Jesus is very interested in justice. And yes, it's true that there are times and places where crime must be dealt with and punished. And we understand that. But it must be done rightly. It must be done according to God's principles of justice. And where justice is not rightly carried out, Jesus sees it and Jesus cares about it. Jesus was shielding this woman from a complete miscarriage of justice. And that's what he was exposing when he said, whoever among you is without sin, you cast the first stone. Because I know you guys, you're in on this. This is a plot you did this not because you care about holiness, not because you care about the family. You did this because you're looking for a stick with which you can beat me over the head with. Now, what did Jesus do after that? Well, he's standing now. He was stooping down. He stood up to say this. And you can just imagine the strength with which Jesus said those words. And... If you or I were Jesus, after we said those words, we would have stared down those religious leaders until they backed off. I mean, that wouldn't, have, wouldn't that have been awesome? 
Is that what Jesus did? No. Look at the next verse. Verse 8. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. He did it again. Don't you see what Jesus is doing? Instead of with some kind of false machismo, Jesus saying, I'm going to mark my territory and stare you guys down. Jesus is doing everything he can to defuse the tension in the situation. Why? Because he cares about her. So once again, he bows low. He draws near to this shame-filled, terrified woman. He draws near to her. He identifies with her. And he says, I am near to you. I will cover you. I will protect you. I want you to know something, that what Jesus did with this woman was a preview of what he did at the cross. Now, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just another guy dying on a cross. There were three men who died on a cross the afternoon that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Three men. What made the death of Jesus different than the other two guys? Because he was the sinless son of God who laid down his life willingly in the fulfillment of God's plan of the ages. Where there were two other guys who died for their own crimes, Jesus had committed no crime whatsoever. He had never once sinned before God or man. When Jesus died, he didn't die for his own crimes. He died as God's appointed divine substitute for you and for me. The guilt and the penalty that our sin, that your sin deserves, was laid upon Jesus at the cross. And he bore it perfectly in the way that only the God-man could. But it wasn't only our guilt. It wasn't only our penalty laid upon him. I'll tell you what was also laid upon Jesus at the cross was our shame. The shame that my sin rightfully deserves, Jesus said, put it on me. I will be exposed, full of shame on the cross. And by the way, literally Jesus was. When you or I see some kind of artistic depiction of Jesus on the cross, he's always wearing kind of a tasteful loincloth. They didn't cover people with loincloths on the cross. They were humiliated and shamed to the greatest extent possible. And in that, Jesus says to you and I, I bore your shame. The answer to your problem of shame and my problem of shame is not to pretend it isn't there. It's not to say, hey man, I'm good, nothing wrong here. It's not to cover it over with entertainment or cutting or medication, or whatever it is. The problem to our shame is to have it dealt with by what Jesus Christ did on the cross and to come to him in faith and to say it a hundred times a day if we need to say it, Jesus, you bore my shame, I release it to you. Jesus, you bore my shame on the cross, I release it to you. The work of Jesus on the cross is so great and so manifold in all that it does, it does not only take care of our 
sin problem. It does not only take care of our guilt problem. It does not only take care of the penalty we deserve. It does all that, believe me. But it also takes care of our shame. And what Jesus did with this woman was like a preview of what he would do on the cross. What an amazing scene. So what happened? Look now at the last few verses. Verse nine. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Why did they leave one by one from oldest to youngest? I don't know. Maybe it was connected to what Jesus wrote on the ground. We don't know, but they all left. Now, when it says they all left, what it means was all the accusing religious leaders left. Not the crowd that was listening to Jesus. The crowd that was listening to Jesus teach is just there going, this is amazing. We never saw anything like this. Oh, Jesus. And of course, they're thinking about all their sin as well. And they're thinking, what a savior What a rescuer who will cover me in my shame of sin. So at the end of it all, look at what Jesus says, starting now at verse 10. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go And sin no more. Jesus stands up. The woman stands up. Lady, weren't there some people accusing you here before? It's almost he says this playfully. I wonder if he wasn't smiling when he said it. It seems to me like there are some people accusing you. Where'd they go? Jesus, they're gone. You're right, they're gone. I don't condemn you either. By the way, can you imagine what healing words those were for her to hear from Jesus? It's Jesus who justifies you. He's not going to condemn you. And then he said to her something so powerful, so simple, so powerful. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I could have preached a whole sermon Don't worry, I'm almost done. I'm not going to start sermon number two here. But I could have preached a whole sermon just on those words. Go and sin no more. First of all, Jesus called it for what it was. It was sin. Lady, what you did with that man who was not your husband, that was sin. Maybe you called it an affair. Maybe you called it a release. Maybe you called it your romantic adventure. Maybe you called it blah, 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 blah. I'm going to tell you what it was. It was sin, lady. Ma'am, that was sin. And then he gave her a word of hope. I picture this poor woman, as many people are in adulterous relationships, she feels trapped. I'm trapped. My heart is after this other man but I've got a husband, I've got children. What am I going to do? Jesus said, you can end this. You don't have to go on in this relationship. I'm telling you, you can go and sin no more. 
you can be released from this. To hear a word from that, from your Messiah and Savior, what a release. She thought, I can't, I can't quit. You can quit this. You can. Go and sin no more. And then the other thing that Jesus did, it's, it's like what he didn't say. All right, let me tell you what the modern Jesus, which is like a false Jesus, the modern false Jesus would say. This is what the modern false Jesus would say to the woman. Go and don't get caught again. Isn't that how we are today? We think that the shame is in getting caught. Can we get real? You know that it's not there you know that there's additional shame in getting caught. But the real shame is in the sin itself. Let's pretend the woman doesn't get caught that day. It's just her normal afternoon with her illicit lover. She goes home. Her husband comes home from work an hour later. She sees her husband. Hi, honey. How does she feel inside? She's dying of shame. Her kids come home playing around at her feet. How does she feel inside? She's dying of shame. She looks in the mirror that night before she goes to bed. She looks at herself and she realizes who she is and what she's doing, how unfaithful she's being. How does she feel? She's dying of shame. We think because the devil and the culture shouts it to us, we think that the shame is in getting caught. God knows that the shame is wrapped up in the sin itself. And that's why God says, my number one plan for rescuing from the shame of sin is preventative. If you don't sin, you'll have less shame. But then even when we do sin, because we will, I have a solution for your shame. It's found in trusting in what Jesus did at the cross. Father in heaven, that's my prayer that you would lead absolutely every one of us to Jesus, our Savior, and his great work on the cross. Thank you for all you did to rescue us from sin and shame. You did what nobody else could do and what we could never do for ourselves. So we thank you, we praise you, and Jesus, I pray that we would receive your word. We'd receive it all. We receive the word, neither do I condemn you. And we would receive the word, go and sin no more. We receive it from you, Lord, in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. <laughs>